Another story we wanted to mention, and we have an expert here, and I, I was saying uh, earlier on we need to ask Ludmilla this, so welcome Ludmilla. Great to be here. Thank nice you. Nice to see you. So as soon as you come in, we dismiss all the pleasantries, get straight to the meat and potatoes of the story. But you know how it is. It's nice to have you back. Um, so we heard from you yesterday talking about this, but we've had uh, a statement from the TRA, and this is all to do with if you have lots of messages, you're being bombarded by messages, if they're hitting you all the time and you feel like they're bothering you, you can do something. The point of the, uh, the, the release that we've had from the TRA is that you can block people, but just to reiterate, in and under the law, you can do something, can't you? Well, correct. Under the law, in fact, any kind of communication, unsolicited communications um, that rise to the level of being a nuisance or annoyance actually are illegal and therefore are punishable uh, under the law. Now, that's legally, so legally there is a recourse against it. In practical terms, what one can do about it is, um, is, is, is something else, and that is... You know, how many of us will actually go and, and report these various phone numbers that we receive messages from or WhatsApp numbers uh, to the authorities? Because that does require, take, take an effort and require for us to actually even physically uh, go to the authorities and make, uh, make this report. So it's more from a practical standpoint, it's, it's, it's more difficult to report. However, I wouldn't be surprised if um, there will be a bureau or a department that will set up under under the uh, the main authority allowing people to just maybe do it online and we have seen this for example with DED with the Dubai health insurance authorities and the tourism authorities allowing people to file complaints online and um, those particular services have been very effective so I wouldn't be surprised if something in response to these kind of press uh, releases and these kind of updates um, the authorities will introduce an avenue similar to that but so yes legally it's it's there is a recourse uh, and um, in practice, it's just a little more difficult uh, to um, to make it to make it uh, addressable. So, what constitutes uh, a nuisance that is worth going to court over? What what would you have to prove? How many messages would there have to have been, for example? Yeah, the, the law does not specify that, so no. it would all be circumstantial and would be up to the judge uh, ultimately. But uh, anything that's unsolicited, obviously, would you could uh, constitute a nuisance if you receive messages that you have not asked for and uh, I mean obviously that that in of itself even in one message uh, depending on the content of the message could be a nuisance what about time of day sorry I'm just I'm trying to think of an instance here if you'd had you know three or four messages over a year that's clearly not a nuisance but if you're receiving messages on a daily basis at odd times of the day or night then all of a sudden you have a case building indeed but what's interesting about your example is that yeah I for example just in the last two hours I must have received 10 or 15 messages on SMS from various unrecognized numbers selling me this service or that product Uh, however all of these messages come from different phone numbers so Mm. you see so I, I receive only only one message per number. So therefore, arguably, they would argue that a message from that one number is not a nuisance. But if I receive 15 such messages from unrecognized numbers within a short period of time, that's something else. So how those kind of activities will be reported is, is something that we need to uh, we need to just wait and see how the authorities will, will want to address it. Because if it was always related to one number, it'd be a lot um, easier to report. But I'm sure all of us can attest that the, the messages come from all sorts of numbers, including foreign numbers. It's clearly something the authorities are now starting to think about as it becomes a greater and greater problem. So you're probably right, Ludmilla. There'll be a different way that we can, they'll provide a way soon where we can easily uh, take ourselves off these lists. Because there's not always an unsubscribe 
um, uh, option. But if mm. there is, that does protect the company to some extent. Could we just clarify that? Sure. Well, so, so for example, with WhatsApp, and we most of us, and I'm not aware of a different system, whenever we receive a WhatsApp message from unrecognized number, there is an option to block um, that number. So that of itself is a way at least to uh, uh, to cut unwanted communication. But if you receive 15 of such messages every day, that's, you know, once again, that that, that solution is you, a solution, it? but yeah. it's not really a kind of an overarching solution that um, um, that would be satisfactory to most. The way to do it at the moment, according to the TRA, is if you, whether you're on a TISLAT or do whoever your uh, telecoms company are, you can block numbers by messaging B, then the number or the short name of the company, 7726. And under federal law, as Miller said, it is illegal to use telecoms equipment or services to offer unsolicited services. That's one subject. We're going to come back and talk to you about VAT in a minute, just to see what's been going on. I know it's, we don't, haven't seen the law yet, but it's worth reiterating some of the stuff that you do know. Ludmilla's been been attending the Ministry of Finance seminars on VAT. It's going to be introduced January the 1st next year. Uh, so we'll talk about that and more topics to cover as well, plus questions, a few questions in here. There's one from uh, somebody. We need a few more details, I think. Let me just read this briefly. I'm a business owner, have three partners. One of them's in India for the last two years, so we can't travel. Please advise me. I'm not quite sure what we're advising on there, but if you have any more details, thank you for the text. Text us back in. More questions to come. If you have a question, Fullard Miller, 431010 is the number, 4001, or via the free app to get in touch. This is Drive Live. On Dubai I 103.8. Legal hour is where we are, all the way until 6 o'clock tonight, slightly less than an hour. Legal Hour on Drive Live. I've just realised, let's start off with VAT today. Ludmilla Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Plethka. There is nothing new in particular, I suppose, to report. Uh, although, Claire, you were right there. The source of what we know is now officially available on the <laughs> Ministry of Finance website. And helpful. I that is new. That's and it news is, in itself. It is helpful. But the law, as we uh, expect it to be, is not yet. It's under draft. It's not ready yet. Ludmilla. Indeed. The law is still in draft form. However, there has been um, enough coverage in the press and in particular uh, by the Ministry of Finance to um, to form by now kind of expectation of what the law will, um, how the law will look. Uh, But with regards to the Ministry of Finance, in fact, they have had a website uh, dedicated and a section on the website dedicated to VAT and they have been publishing information as it becomes available or as the authorities seem relevant over the last several months. However, it had not been updated for a few months and so just on, just yesterday on July July 9th, they have updated their website and the Q&A on the site so uh, for all those who are listening out there and want to understand more details about how VAT will work or what the final law will look like. Um, this is a very useful um, a source and it's just ministry, type Ministry of Finance and VAT or obviously UAE Ministry of Finance and VAT and that will uh, you will uh, be redirected fairly easily uh, to the section that there's about seven pages of Q&As. Uh, so with regards to, so that's kind of that's the news. The news is that the website and the Q&A um, has been updated. With right. regards to what's in the content um, uh, we've covered most of those updates because we have been 
uh, going to the Ministry of Finance uh, briefings and, and been reporting sort of hot off the press, if you will, all the uh, statements and the updates from the briefings. So in, in terms of adding something new uh, today uh, from what we have reported in the past, there isn't really much, um, uh, much new, uh, but there's certainly a lot more detail on the website right now that, um, in, that would be relevant, particularly for businesses, because we are already in July and, uh, and, and the mandatory registration is October. So for all those businesses who are obviously all businesses will be required to register for VAT, most of the businesses. So there's not very much time left between now and October to register and familiarize yourself uh, with, uh, with the system. Also, because it's not just about the registration, it's about starting to amend and incorporate policies and systems in the businesses um, to, um, to allow yourselves to be compliant. So is that all on the site? If I've got a small business and I need to go and check, what does it mean for me? What do I need to, to do? How do I do it? It's all now there for me to find out. Uh, it's more, more or less. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of useful uh, um, pieces of information that will be um, that will be a starting point for businesses. Uh, and in particular, how they need to start uh, considering changing their accounting practices or invoicing practices. Uh, and as of which date, and in particular, I guess, the penalties that they will be incurring if they're um, delayed with either their registration or, or obviously uh, submitting the relevant relevant documents. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's with regards to um, uh, to I guess this the update of yesterday. Uh, but in more specific terms, what I thought was more relevant uh, more relevant that would be interesting for the vis- uh, for the listeners, uh, there was um, a, a pending issue with regards to SMEs or small and small and medium sized enterprises with they somehow would be exempt or subject to a different VAT rate um, by virtue of being SMEs. And uh, Minister of Finance has confirmed that there will not be any special treatment for SMEs. So that would be one kind of interesting and relevant update. Um, there's another update regarding uh, custom duties and whether VAT, uh, uh, whether you could subtract VAT from custom duties. In fact, you cannot. Uh, and the VAT will be charged um, on the amount that includes the custom duties. Uh, so that's just that's just another another interesting update for businesses. Uh, the cash receipts versus VAT invoices. There was um, an interesting section about that, and we, in fact, we've had some listeners who have asked uh, before how um, how they should be prepared to amend their business practices uh, if they deal in cash. And uh, and the key here is that all invoices have to fo- follow a certain format. And Clara, and that kind of level of detail is actually available on the website. So any businesses that want to benefit um, from VAT and obviously and are required to uh, register, um, they need to ensure that their invoicing and the form of their invoicing follows this a certain pattern which is described on the site okay so that's where we are at the moment if you want more information on uh, VAT the introduction January the 1st 2018 you have to be uh, prepared uh, and uh, be accepting of it I guess by October but that's what we know at the moment Ministry of Finance website is where you can find the information uh, but as we go over the next uh, few months we'll have updates when we can from you, uh, Ludmilla. Legal Hour continues uh, in a few moments' time. Questions coming in here. If you have a question for Ludmilla, there's a legal perspective that you need. Get in touch on 4001 or via the free app. JD has been in touch. That's an interesting point we'll bring up a little bit later. Transfers of visa, visas from Abu Dhabi to Dubai within the same company. How that works, we'll come to you on that. Uh, also some uh, other employment questions as well. But if there is something, particularly property-wise uh, as well, it's one of uh, Ludmilla's areas of expertise get in touch 4001 via the free app or 423 1010
No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Legal Hour on Drive Live. You are listening to Drive Live with myself, Claire Sharrock, and Tim Elliott over there. We've got Ludmilla Yamalova. Sorry, Ludmilla, I'll get your name right in a minute. We've got Ludmilla Yamalova in the studio with us as well, answering your legal questions this evening. And Ludmilla, we've got a couple coming in, um, which we'll start with um, quickly now. Uh, No name on this one, or once his name withheld, actually, saying, my friend might have been unfairly dismissed. His notice period is one month. He's been given three months in redundancy pay. Um, can he claim more? Is he entitled to more? In short, based on the uh, the question, it sounds like your friend has been paid the full amount that he would otherwise be entitled under under the law. And just in relevant terms, uh, whenever one uh, at the uh, at the end of employment um, uh, contract or employment relationship, uh, when an employee is being dismissed or even when the employee leaves the company, uh, so there are several elements in terms of what um, um, I guess the sort of the common term has become end of service benefits uh, would be. Uh, and then one is the notice period, and that is um, uh, it's a minimum one month unless the contract provides otherwise. In your friend's case, obviously, there is a one-month notice period, so that is um, that is what he will receive from that uh, from that perspective. The second element is the what's called the arbitrary dismissal, and that is when an employee is terminated for no good reason or cause. And then the arbitrary dismissal, uh, as per the law, it's up to three months of a full salary, uh, and in most cases however it is the courts tend to give the full three months and it sounds like your friend already received the three months and then the third element uh, I guess in, in, in relevant parts is the um, uh, is the end of service um, calculation and that is based on uh, the duration of your friend's employment and uh, basic salary uh, so as long as your friend received all of those plus a ticket home and any unpaid vacation then that is all that he will uh, otherwise be entitled to under the law and um, uh, in particular, is if if the three months that you're mentioning relates to the arbitrary dismissal, then that would be uh, the maximum the law allows for uh, for uh, you know I guess un- undue termination. Uh, but um, but you, but but do make sure that you go through all these different separ- uh, separate elements because there is confusion in the market uh, where end of service benefits is is thought of. For example, the notice and the arbitrary dismissal are usually mixed together. So here, a no- notice and arbitrary dismissal plus end of service benefits are all separate elements. So it's a good question to ask and not just assume that you have received what you're entitled to. You should look into... Well, indeed. And and furthermore, for the company, if they wanted to protect themselves, it's very important that they uh, outline specifically what this uh, this settlement amount uh, was attributable to. Uh, Because if, for example, they just paid him the three months and it was not detailed in terms of how this amount was was apportioned amongst the, uh, the necessary elements as per the law, then the employer you could actually challenge this in court and argue that this was some sort of a settlement figure and he was actually not paid uh, the other amounts such as arbitrary dismissal and notice period and end of service benefits, which we have seen happen in the past. So for companies to protect themselves, you want to make sure that whatever you pay to your employees, you clearly document that, let's say, notice period was paid in this amount X, uh, arbitrary dismissal, three months or month and a half, whatever it may be, the amount is Y, uh, and end of service uh, uh, payments or end of service 
service benefits, which are based on the term of ser- service and basic salary, was X, uh, and so on and so forth. So, and that's actually make sure that the, your, the, the employee actually signs that uh, because we have seen many settlement agreements in the past being challenged in court. Here's another one in, actually. This, yeah, is, this relates to the three months. There's a lot of questions here. If you do have a question for Ludmilla, uh, get it in as early, early as possible because we're only going to have until six. But uh, this is somebody saying, I'm on three months' notice. When I resign, if I want to leave earlier, can I do so? I obviously wouldn't expect to be paid the full three months if that is the case. It depends on how the notice is drafted because if the notice only goes uh, one way, and that is that the company is entitled to give him three months and he is not required to do so, then... Uh, because it, the notice does not have to be mutual uh, in terms of its duration. So if it, doesn't, if, if it doesn't say anything, then it's presumed that it will be mutual. So therefore, if you are leaving uh, early, that you will need to give your company the three, three months notice. However, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the uh, employment agreements we have seen actually usually, um, usually link the notice or the requirement of the notice on the company and not so much on the employee. Uh, but in terms of leaving early, everyone is always entitled to leave early. Similarly, a company can terminate an employee at any point in time, irrespective of the term of the agreement, because there is no uh, forced labor, if you will, in, in the UAE. So it only becomes a matter of compensation, how much the company or the employee or, or, or the breaching party uh, owes the other party for terminating that employment agreement early. Uh, but if, um, if, if the person, if it's an employee who is resigning, normally, depending on how long they've actually worked for the company, but they lose out on part of their end-of-service benefits. And so if, it's, if they leave uh, between a year, one to three years, they only get paid, uh, well, I think it's only seven days per year in terms of uh, end-of-service benefits of basic salary. Whereas if they're being terminated, then they get paid 21 days. And if it's, um, if it's resignation, then it's one-third of that. And between year two and five, it's uh, two-thirds, which is 14 days per year. And then after, years, after five years of service, it doesn't matter whether an employee is being terminated or resigns, uh, the end-of-service benefits are calculated, calculated the same way. Uh, there's also provision in the law, however, that, and this is where there's a lot of confu- confusion, that in the event an employee terminates the agreement early, that they may have to compensate the company for maximum up to a month and a half of salary. A mo- a maximum a month and a half. However, a lot of companies um, take that to mean that they have an automatic right to deduct that amount from the employee's uh, final settlement or final payment. That is not the case because the law is drafted in the way where that particular month must, uh, must correspond with a damage to the employer or the company. And that's why, because it's, it's drafted in terms of compensation. The employee has to compensate the company for the damage that they have suffered. And the only authority who can determine whether that damage happened and the extent of that damage is the court. So in other words, uh, technically speaking, employers do, have, do not have the right to withhold that amount uh, or subtract it unless there is a court action and the court allows them to do so. But most companies do not know that and do not follow that practice. <laughs> okay, then. Well, sticking with employment law, Ludmilla, Ludmilla we've got... Um, another one here um, saying uh, I've accumulated 17 days of vacation um, leave from last year. My company allowed me to transfer only five days from the previous year. If I resign, will I be entitled only to the five days or the 17 actual unpaid leave days from last year? That's from Anwar. 
In short, it'll be the, the full 17 days uh, because you do not lose your vacation. You're entitled to compensation for all your va- uh, un- untaken vacation. Um, the, only, um, the only limitation there is that there's a statute of limitation uh, under the employment law of one year to bring your claim. So, But in this case, under your circumstances, that would not apply because you, are, you would be claiming that amount for last year. So one year uh, from the date your claim arises has not yet happened. So therefore, statute of limitation in this case will not apply and you will be entitled to your full to the full number of the days of vacation you did not take here's a good question in from safe i'm not sure if safe's a manager or an employee but can a manager fire an employee for attitude problems but how would Um, you do it great question uh, because so let me just recap a company can terminate an employee at any time for any reason and with no notice and vice versa employee can leave the company at any time for no reason and with no notice it only becomes a matter of compensation so in this case if a manager wants to terminate somebody for a uh, for bad attitude they can do so but they will have to pay the employee the compensation for having terminated that employment agreement or, or employment relationship early um, so in the case of, uh, of our listener uh, who is mentioning the termination uh, for attitude that would qualify as arbitrary dismissal uh, the law in order to avoid arbitrary dismissal in relevant terms the law clearly sets out what companies need to do to document uh, I guess which first of all which which actions uh, actions qualify as um, as being um, uh, being legitimate uh, and therefore allowing companies to avoid having to pay various employment benefits because these are actions for a cause or termination for a cause. That's, so the law specifies what those actions are, one, and two, what the company needs to do to document those actions and the time that it needs to give employees to, uh, uh, to remedy their behavior if, if possible. So it's not so simple. Uh, and, but if, and most companies, I will tell you from experience, we have not seen very many companies who have actually uh, documented their employees' um, uh, wrongdoing in the way that would actually uh, meet the, um, the 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 standards as prescribed by law, and therefore most of them have to pay employees arbitrary dismissal only because they, the companies that is, have not reported these acts properly. Um, so in this case, um, termination for attitude or, or termination for bad hairdo, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it will just the employee will be entitled to arbitrary dismissal, and I said earlier that will be the maximum uh, amount and that would be three months of full salary it's not basic salary plus obviously there will always be also be a notice period whichever it may be as per the contract but the minimum of mo- one month we'll switch topics a little now we're really working you hard tonight lots of questions coming in for double zero one if you want to add yours this one from to here um, my Tennessee contract is valid until August 8th I want to keep the apartment however my landlord um, has passed away he's not yet transferred um, the heirs have not yet transferred the apartment to their name. How can I renew the tenancy contract? Can I? <clears throat> very good question and, and a very, uh, in some ways, I guess, intellectual and legally um, interesting and challenging, but uh, for the purposes of a tenant or um, sort of practical terms, it's actually not. It's not so difficult because as a tenant, you don't really need to do anything. If you want to remain the property, you remain the property and it's and it's the responsibility of your landlord or the landlord's heirs uh, to address the situation. So you as a, as a tenant, you don't really need to do anything until, until you need to do something and you will only need to do something when you actually have uh, someone who now stands in the shoes of your previous or your deceased um, landlord um, and obviously 
shows you the, the right documents to show that they are now in control or have the authority to manage the property. And um, But if you want to be a good tenant and if you know who the heirs are and if you have a relationship with uh, the, the, the family the, to the point where you know that that's, that's a safe bet, I mean, you certainly can continue to pay rent to the heirs, but just make sure to document it properly. Otherwise, another alternative is to uh, to submit your check in the name of your now deceased landlord, uh, but with the rent committee. And that would obviously allow you just to at least prove that you um, had the full intention to pay. Uh, and just because of the administrative circumstances, you had no one else to pay to. So, but I would imagine in, in under these circumstances, that's probably not even going to be necessary. You could just reach out. This is more of a practical advice, more so than legal. I would just reach out to who you believe the um, the heirs are and just reach an agreement that you will you will regroup and revisit the issue once they have sorted out uh, administration of the estate uh, on their end. And uh, But until that such time, you do not need to pay them because you don't really know who you need to be paying until there's a court order or of um, distribution. Okay, I hope that was helpful to hear. 4001, if you'd like to get your question on, uh, we're here till 6 o'clock with Legal Hour. Lots more from Ludmilla coming up next. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I 103.8 FM. It is Legal Hour. Just 10 more minutes to get your questions in 4001 if you'd like to uh, raise a question this afternoon. Um, Ludmilla still here with us. And Ludmilla, I want to go to a question that we've had that came in by email um, uh, ahead of the programme today from James. He said, I'm really struggling to find advice regarding wills in Dubai. I've had one legal firm tell me that I can prepare a will and file it with Dubai courts, which will be honoured and exempt from Sharia law. Another saying that the only way it will be exempt from Sharia law is to file it with DI. FC. I'd love your advice, if possible at all, on conflicting advice. I don't know what to believe. Okay, so in relevant terms, uh, it is possible to have a will that is registered with the Dubai courts versus the DFC courts and expect for that will to be honoured uh, as per the uh, testator's wishes, How, except assets that relate to real estate. Uh, so therefore, if the will includes any real estate assets, those assets by law would uh, would have to be disposed of as per Sharia. Uh, this is because, well, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that was how the Dubai courts would look at. And this is because there is a somewhat of a gray area or a conflict in, in the, be, between relevant laws. There's a law related uh, to personal status, which allows for uh, for non-Muslims to elect the law of the, their, of the country of their residence or a country of their citizenship uh, and that and the courts will honor that so therefore if you do have a will and you register with the Dubai courts and you wish for let's say your home country's laws to apply the courts will honor it uh, but there is another law that relates to uh, real estate assets uh, and uh, their disposition upon uh, you know, upon one's death and that uh, and under that law any real estate um, is um, is uh, uh, considered to be part of the sharia courts and sharia law so therefore and this is exactly why the dfc cor- uh, the dfc wills and probate was introduced is to help help expats to um, have some sort of certainty in terms of how their assets will be dispersed because let's face it a lot of the expats here do own real estate and it's that's really what they worry about so the dfc court or and the dfc um, was in probate in particular was introduced exactly with that in mind to to avoid that uncertainty uh, so if you're and th- so that's that's 
I guess that's, that's a, a summary of, um, of um, how the two systems work. Another important comment is that just because you have a will that has the bears, a Dubai, uh, Dubai court stamp, and this is wh- why a lot of these questions come up and a lot of confusion because a lot of people do go to the Dubai courts and they, they do register um, their wills with the Dubai courts and register probably is a bit of an uh, overstatement. All it is is the Dubai courts will add their stamp uh, to, uh, uh, to the will. They assume that that stamp equates to some sort of confirmation approval that that will is valid. That is not so. All it is is just the authorities acknowledge that, yes, there is a document um, that is a will that um, has been registered with the authority, that that is registered with the authorities. But it is not at all confirmation that the will is valid and then the will will be uh, interpreted as per, you know, as, as per I guess, it's, it's, uh, its drafting uh, when it reaches the courts. So this is very, very important to understand because most people uh, are upset about what they're hearing in the press because they have these wills that have the Dubai court stamps and they assume that they are um, that they're valid and they will be enforced. Because the issue really comes in when a will is disputed, isn't it? That's when it starts to get very difficult, obviously. Uh, yes, but also when you have a will, for example, that such as that were registered with the Dubai courts, but includes real estate assets. So when the beneficiaries or the heirs want to uh, want to enforce it uh, through the courts, um, because you have to, a will is just a piece of paper. So that in of itself will not um, will not help you dispose of the uh, the estate until you have a court order. So everyone here, or everyone who's lost someone here, would actually just having that piece of paper, what's called a will, it will not be sufficient. You still need a court order that says how these assets are going to be distributed and to whom. To do that, you file a case with the the family court and then uh, as part of the process, the court will issue what's called a decree of distribution in terms of who the heirs are. And then and then from there on, you decide as heirs which assets um, will go to whom. Uh, so that And that's an uncontested, um, uncontested will. But in that case, again, the court, if, if if, it, if the will includes real estate assets, the court will not necessarily dispose of those assets uh, as per the will. Uh, they may decide to dispose them as per Sharia. In fact, they, they do by default. Why I mentioned earlier, it's a little more complicated because in legal terms, I'm trying to be to be as, as simple as I can, but it's not so it's, it's not it's not an easy task with regards to this particular subject because, as I said, real estate, as per this law, actually are is subject to Sharia. And if you go to court and you file a claim, and that, that's how they will, um, they will um, treat your real estate assets. However, if you dispute that and you continue go, going all the way up to the Court of Cassation, the Court of Cassation will overrule that because there is also a law that says Sharia only applies to Muslims. So therefore, you see, I, I see these very confused looks, but that's... And so I was trying to be very careful about how much detail I go into and, and how I phrase it. Um, so there is another conflict in, in the judicial practice. Uh, but um, So the practice has developed such that all real estate by default and all personal matters by default will be subject to, uh, to Sharia unless, uh, unless uh, you know, I guess, heirs want to do otherwise, but it will still exclude real estate. Um, however... However, if you actually challenge it all the way to the Court of Cassations, there have been enough decisions uh, to clearly state the Sharia should only apply to Muslims, and therefore they will reverse it and send it back to the trial court, and uh, you'll have to uh, you'll have to start anew. So it's it's very complicated. So in short, if you are a non-Muslim and you have real estate assets 
it really would benefit you to have a DFC will only because there's another issue, a practical issue, and that is, let's say you're a French citizen and you want to apply the law uh, in France. The, the burden is going to be on you to prove to a local judge what that law is and, and what it means under that law in terms of who the rightful beneficiaries or heirs will be of the, t- uh, of, of the deceased. So it's not simple because you have to prove your country's law that it's drafted in yet another language uh, to an Arabic-speaking judge and translated into Arabic. So there are a lot of, a lot of administrative nuances that make it much more challenging. Uh, and... Um, the, the ability to register your wills with the DIFC in the English language simplifies that. It's always the case on this program that it's never as easy as you think it's <laughs> going to be. You can text in a question we, and hope for the answer this easy. But we that, really need a whole program on that one topic. Yeah. You really do. It's something we cover all the time. But that, in simple terms, having the will is the point that Lubel is making. Um, let's go for a quick throw through a couple of questions in uh, by text. There are loads to do here. Let me, let me throw this at you. We're an LLC company, three partners, two brothers, and a local sponsor who has uh, majority shareholding as per the law. All are over 70 years old. This person makes the point rather indelicately uh, about kicking the bucket. But the point is, if you're of that, it's then you know things do happen. I'm sure the bank would freeze all the funds and accounts company could make big losses. What can we do to protect the company if uh, one of the shareholders did pass away? Well... Another First, huge answer. Yes, yes. Again, <laughs> I pause. Two minutes. I pause. Two minutes. So, uh, number one, I will tell you from experience uh, on you know, our, many of our clients' experience, it is no longer necessarily the case that when a person dies, everything comes to a halt and everything is frozen. It is no longer the case. So, in the past, it truly was the case, and I'm not saying it will um, it will continue to be the same way. It may go back, but in the past, when the person dies, in particular, dies in this country, so the authorities authorities are alerted. To to it uh, fairly quickly, then yes, their assets would be frozen. Uh, but uh, recently, in in practice, that has not been happening. So the banks do not freeze uh, uh, accounts, and uh, you don't really get kicked out of your apartment uh, only because um, the person died. Uh, so it, that's in practical terms. Now, in more in more legal terms, I mean, it's always good to have a roadmap uh, to prepare for something like this, and obviously for the at least for the partners um, that are non uh, non on Emiratis, in this case, or the brothers, uh, you need to agree amongst yourselves how you want to deal with this. And obviously, it'd be best for you to have uh, to have some sort of uh, a will or some kind of, um, but again, a will will only apply if the <laughs> partners or the brothers are non-Muslim. If, if the brothers are Muslim, then it will be done once again as per Sharia. And you cannot, um, cannot uh, overwrite that and cannot go around it. So another question we have been asked in the past many, many times, and that is, you know, what if I give a POA, a power of attorney to, uh, to my partners and, and vice versa? What if we all give each other POAs? And so will we be able to, for example, then transfer shares or dispose of assets on on the base of the POA in the event of death. No, you cannot do because the POA ceases to exist or ceases to become to be valid upon death. So POA powers of attorney are only valid as, the, as long as the person is alive um, and, um, and, and, I guess, thinking because, yeah, there are other t- types of incapacity. Uh, so this is very important because if you do any actions on the base of POA knowing uh, after the person has died, that qualifies as fraud. So many questions we didn't get to. Sorry about that this evening. But I tell you what, we will hold them over and uh, pin Ludmilla down next week with them because uh, she'll be back then. Thank you so much, as usual, Ludmilla Yamalava from Yamalava and Plevka Legal Consultants.